0: Well, as Beth said, we're changing seasons, and we come to Advent, and Advent has kind of a shout to it, uh, an invitation to stop and to look, so that Advent is always both a joyous occasion as we're moving towards uh, Christmas, but also has a penitential or a a repentant sort of theme to it in preparation, much like Lent does for Easter. Easter. When we hear this notion kind of shouted at us, as I said, that there's just gigantic transformation coming, when we speak of a day that one day it will all come true, this is what I want to say is in-depth discernment of reality, right? I mean, it can just sort of sound like a phrase or a tagline or something or, you know, that sort of thing. But what if it actually is in-depth discernment of what's really real? Because the second coming is inconceivable. It's indescribable. And to even begin to grasp it or imagine it seems impossible, that we just seem to not be able to do it. But what if in spite of that, we can trust in the loving goodness and timing and power of God? I mean, similarly, none of us can really understand light or be fully articulate about it, right? Probably very few of us in this room could stand up and say, here is the definitive properties of light and how waves and particles work together and how they become luminescent, right? I mean, most of us have, when you get right down to it, almost no clue about things like light. But it's here and we trust it, and we live by it. And the invitation of Advent is this, so it is with the second coming. That without full comprehension, you can still trust Jesus will come again, and you can let that shape our lives. So the call of Advent is something like within our real turmoil and challenge. And I say this over and over again because I think it's so important that Christians are not dualists. We don't deny our challenges. We don't deny our pain. We don't deny the real things that are happening in real people's lives right now. So the Advent call is within our real turmoil and our real challenge to not lose sight of God, as our readings have said. But to let your present knowing of him, so just feel that for a second, your present knowing of him, Think of the moments in your daily life where you really are assured of him and let that present knowing of him assure you of his completed purposes. So over the next four weeks, we'll light candles of hope and joy and peace and love in the kind of prophetic expectation that one day the light of the world really will banish darkness and despair and pain. So Advent invites us into the beginning of what is a great, grand narrative. And after church this morning, you'll be handed this little gift from Holy Trinity with a note on it from me. In it is a two-CD set of what I think are two of the best talks I've ever heard in my life. They're given by my favorite uh, missiologist, um, Leslie Newbigin, uh at a talk at Holy Trinity Brompton, I want to say in the late 80s. Could have been early 90s. But in these two CDs, Newbegin tells the story of the whole Bible. Brilliantly, flawlessly, amazingly. And I'm giving this to you this Advent. Holy Trinity has given this to you so that you can put it on one of your devices or put it in your car if your car still has a CD player. Um, And I want to invite you over the next month to just listen to it over and over and over again until it becomes your story and your sense of this is who I am. And this is the place, this is a story from which I gain meaning from my life. So after church, out on the courtyard, or as you're leaving, um, one of the ushers will hand you that so that we just begin to soak in that God has been at work in the past, in creation, supervising human history, and that God is at work now, even though it doesn't sometimes seem like it. A recent study, the first one ever done of its kind, no one had ever really tried this before, but just in the last week or so, a long study has come out showing the impact of Christianity on culture. If you take the 344,000 churches that there are in the U.S. and add up the total good that they do, it is $1.2 trillion. $1.2 trillion. That's an economic value more than Apple, Google, or Amazon combined. If it were an economy, it would be the 15th largest economy in the world. That is the good that God continues to do little by little in quiet, unspoken ways that hardly anyone ever notices, right? Like a, you know, a starlet or a star you know, gets drunk and stumbles out of a bar and it's on the cover of every magazine, Right? But no one sees when somebody helps a widow in God's name. Or when someone has a fire and the church comes together and rebuilds that house. No one ever hears about that kind of stuff. But if you add it all up, $1.2 trillion. Year in and year out, God doing good through his people. And so this is meant to create a trajectory that God, there was goodness in creation, God continues to express goodness even when there's horrors going on all over the world, and that that is going to be a trajectory that someday it will all come true. And that truth, the trajectory of that story, this is why I want you to place it before your mind this Advent, is meant to inform our today that that future assures us of how we live today. This is what Isaiah is getting at in our Isaiah reading when he says there's a day coming when the mountains of God, God's house will be the mountain. That is to say it will be solid and towering over all other mountains. And that when this day comes, he'll show us the way he works in this story so that we then can live the way we were made to live. And there will be peace. Nation will not take up sword against nation ever again, nor will they train for war anymore. Things like envy and greed and resentment, retribution and fear in this day are all made irrelevant. Okay, so catch this. Our invitation is to live today as it will be then. This means that for us, envy and greed and resentment and all these things are irrelevant. This is an aspect of our conversion that's meant to happen from a view of the future, that the weapons we do to harm others can now be eliminated. We just don't need them anymore because we are made safe in this big story from creation to the renewal of the heavens and the earth at the second coming of Jesus. But every nation, or excuse me, every generation needs the assurance that the powers of this present world will someday not win. I mean, just looking today again at Um, you know, in my newsfeed of the bloody little faces of those little Arab children in Aleppo, and you just think, what the heck? What is so important that that's like, okay? It's just collateral damage. I, I honestly, I don't get it. What could be so important? And I could could stand here for 20 minutes and just give you a long laundry list of awful things that happen all day, every day, all around the globe. And so every generation, I mean, imagine being Jewish in World War II. Imagine trying to be a faithful, sincere Jew in World War II. That generation needed to be reassured. Every generation needs the reassurance that someday the breaking point will come. And there will be this giant discontinuity, which is to say the powers will be broken, but there will also be an accompanying continuity, and that the point of those powers being broken is so that the end of this story can come to its full effect, and so that God's plan for creation will be made right. Well, I know what's difficult here. I've been living with, with it myself for 40 years. I know what's difficult here. We tend to go wrong in one of two ways. We yearn for this to come. It doesn't come, and if you're my age, I thought Jesus was coming in 1981, 1988, and wasn't the other one around the year 2000 or something, I forget now, but but, right? I mean, so I was a teenager and thought, great, I might not even have to finish college because Jesus is coming, right? I don't ever have to have a mortgage payment, raise a teenager, right? Or maybe worse yet, we lose the yearning and we give into a kind of hopelessness that nothing's ever really going to change. But Advent says to you this morning, and I want to say to you, hold on to your dream. It's a beautiful picture of this, in my view anyway. There's a Jesuit chapel at St. Louis University where the light fixtures, look up, the light fixtures are made of 20th century, the bloodiest, most war-torn century in human history. The light fixtures are made of 20th century cannon shells. Now just catch the beauty of this. They've been emptied of their lethal power. They've been converted and now hold light by which people pray and worship. That's the image that we want to keep with us. That's what's real. That's why I began with saying that is in-depth discernment. What the paparazzi show us is fleeting and does not matter in the big picture. Now, I don't mean to say if a celebrity's harmed or something, that doesn't matter, but you get me. Those sort of fleeting things of, you know, what seems important, that so and so is playing golf here or something, like... Uh. <laughs> Right and so that becomes front and center and we lose that the the true in-depth discernment of reality is that that one day all of this evil and darkness and despair and pain will be emptied of its power and transformed there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and as our readings invite us we're then invited to walk in that light But our gospel reading this morning tells us that this is going to take the world by surprise, that no one except God knows when it's going to take place. Now, that says to us two things. One is we need to stay ready, but that it's all in God's hand. Did you catch that? There's the no one knows, but then there's the but God. He does know, and he is superintending history. But for us, the way we'll experience it are these analogies that, like Noah, where people were just, you know, going on with business as usual, eating and drinking and marrying, with no idea that there was impending action coming. Do you see that's the point here? It could be that someday while bombs are raining down over here and a group of people is being marginalized and oppressed over here and another group of people is experiencing great darkness and pain, that in the midst of that, everything in a twinkling of an eye will change. Therefore, Jesus said, stay awake, be ready. This is what Paul's getting at in our Romans reading. He says, you need to understand the present time. Well, this is not an analogy of a clock. It's more like an analogy of knowing that a scene is coming up in a movie. Like do you have a movie you watch over and over again? And you know, you're sitting there, you know that this scene's about to come up. Remember the one in Jurassic Park where the little boy and the little girl are hiding in the kitchen and the raptors are outside? Remember that famous scene? And the raptor comes and kind of hits his nose on the door, and the, he starts opening the door, and, you know, you're just terrified that, you know, what are these raptors going to do to these kids? That sort of thing. This is what Paul's getting at. Understand where you are in the story. Thus, the story. Understand the time it is that you're living in. So then he says, based on this understanding, Do this. Wake from your slumber. And the analogy that Paul's working with here is day and night. So the darkness is going to be over, and like a new day, you get up and you get dressed, knowing that a new day is here. For Paul, that's signaling that our salvation is nearer now and a new world is being born. And so he continues the analogy of what it means to put on the clothes of the day by saying, behave decently as in the daytime. Not in the not in the darkness of carousing and drunkenness and sexual immorality, depravity sorry, depravity, dissension, and jealousy. Rather, back to the image, clothe yourself with the clothes of daytime or the armor of light. So clothe yourself with the person and way of being of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh, for that's dishonorable, that's of the nighttime. Now, this raises an interesting question. If what I'm saying is true, that a new world is coming and will one day finally come, why would anyone want to cling to the old ways of being? Why would anyone cling to depravity or dissension, knowing that a new day is dawned, and we know how the story is going to end? So why would anybody cling to those old things? I mean, that's interesting just rhetorically, but what if we made it a real question? Why would anybody? People do. By the billions, they do. They actually positively hang on to the old things. Well, why? Why would anyone do that? I think this is a deep and important question. It's the difference between profession of faith versus confident belief. So you can profess anything and have no intention of ever doing anything about it. To actually have the positive intention to continue doing what you're doing. So you might profess something about your lifestyle that needs to be changed but there's actually no intention of doing anything about it. But what's happened, unfortunately, in Christianity is that we've reduced Christianity oftenly to professions. And and actually what that really means is I know that's what I'm supposed to believe, so I'll say I believe it, I'll profess it. But there's actually not any intentionality of the person's will to engage in human behavior that would match that. Or we might think about it from the point of view of desire. And I actually want you to answer this question this morning. In a sense, it doesn't matter what the answer is, but it'll just be enlightening. So hear this question and do your best to answer it in your own heart. Would you like there to be a God who in the end makes his plan all come true? Would you like that? You see how that's what gets to reality. Because for many people, they'd be, well, I'm not sure, or no, I don't think so. But it, it, it gets to just our basic fundamental places of like desire or confident belief versus mere profession in something that we think is supposed to be true. And the reason I put this question before us this morning and put it before myself before I put it to you is the notion that our desire shapes our ability to see what's real. You know, we tend to think that life is mainly or totally an intellectual exercise, and it's not. Very, very often, our internal, sometimes unseen, unspoken system of desires shapes our ability or gives us a lens that distorts or not what's real, depending on those desires. Beth helped us think about this this morning when she began. This Advent... How might I cultivate and feed a desire for God's story coming true? That's what we want to do together the next month. We want to try to cultivate a desire and feed a desire for God's story to come true and for us to find our place in it. Now, just one more quick word here. There's a passage in 2 Peter 3 that we don't read during this Advent season, but I think we need to just kind of put it before us as we, as we get into this, where Peter's trying to help the readers of his day think through this business of, well, God said he was coming. He's going to change everything. It doesn't seem to be happening. And so Second Peter 3 is a great help for those who feel honestly pessimistic, as if nothing ever changes. Why should it now? So you probably know this passage. Peter says, in the last day, scoffers will come, Well, scoffers are mockers. They're they're the kind of person who treats a given thing with contempt. And usually what goes along with that is a verbal ridiculing of whatever that thing is. And so now listen to this. Peter, Peter says, now why? What's happening with people who have that kind of contemptuous pessimism? I want you to really catch this. It's only a few words. It's just five words, but they're really important. They are following their own evil desires, he does not say they missed the class on eschatology. He doesn't say they haven't read enough books on the last times. He says the reason that they scoff and treat the coming of God with contempt is that they're following something else. What? Something of their own, internal to them. What is that? Disordered desires or evil desires. Evil there means like malformed. Malformed. They are following their own malformed ideas. They have not yet steeped so much in God's story that it's even touching their most internal desires. And so it's as if Peter knows that we're bombarded with tempting messages to trust other powers or to create or fulfill sinful desire all the time. And a big part of that is that because something big is built into humanity, something really big is wired into us and it just that itch can never be scratched by big cars or big houses what scratches it is the big story of God and that one day it will all come true and so Peter ends by saying be ready just as Paul did just as Jesus did be ready for for this world is going to disappear Everything in it will be laid bare and renewed. This will be the power of God, the explosive power of God, exercised to renew the whole cosmos. This is why with God, you must always give to him the most power your brain can conceive of. And you have to be okay with that because I know we live in a day when power is usually not exercised well. And so most of us are afraid of power, especially any kind of ultimate or big power. But with God, you mustn't go there. You must let yourself think the biggest thoughts about God you have in terms of his capacity, his power, his ability, his essential nature. You, You need to cultivate in yourself a mind and a heart where he is so powerful that in the same way he said, let there be light, I want you to get this, please. In the same way he said, let there be light, that same power and that same wisdom has made it been that the right thing to do is to let thousands of years go by. Of all the things that God could have chosen, he has chosen what has happened for his own good and loving reasons. And the same person who said, let there be light, and there was light in this cosmos, one day that God will say, enough there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And so then Peter ends by saying, since we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, what kind of people ought you to be? And he answers his own question saying, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And that introduces us to this repentant, reflectful element of Advent. So as we come to our quiet moment Advent is a time to help us wait. It's meant to define and give purpose to the one thing that does exist. Right? The great hope that we desire, the great new beginning that we covet, it's not here yet. But the Advent that we do await is meant to give definition and purpose to the one thing that you do have, you have right now. You have this moment, this day, this person, this event. And Advent invites us into these moments to come, let us walk in the light of the Lord.